Welcome to Can't Knock the Shuffle Season 2. I'm your host, Sean Cantrowitz. If you're anything like me, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume we have this in common, you love finding out how songs are made. The stories, the details, the hidden gems, all of it. Here's the thing. Most artists typically only get asked about a handful of their most popular tracks. Not only do fans like you and I want to hear the stories behind all of the songs, but I long have suspected that the artists themselves are pretty eager to share some of the untold stories too. That's why I created Can't Knock the Shuffle. I take an artist's entire catalog, put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. It's like live liner notes with an algorithm in the driver's seat. In this episode, I'm joined by producer and multi-instrumentalist, Nicolay. Originally hailing from the Netherlands, Nick launched his career as we know it in the early 2000s when he was sharing files over the internet with Fonte Coleman from Little Brother. Their remote international collaboration resulted in the group Foreign Exchange, an ahead of its time project that eventually brought Nicolay to the States and would lead to several albums, consistent touring around the globe, his own foreign exchange music record label, and a Grammy nomination for the group's second album, Leave It All Behind. And they've done it all independently and by playing by their own rules. Nicolay has also released his own albums, both instrumental and with other vocalists, and he's built his brand around a refusal to conform to one sound or style. He's also an encyclopedia of music knowledge and a funny guy, so you know that we get along great. All right, let's get into it. What's good? How are you, man? What's happening, Sean? It's uh, it's good to be here. It's good to see you, dude. That's uh, my first Zoom call of this pandemic, so I'm excited. I know. We were saying that earlier. I feel either very special or grimly responsible for you breaking your Zoom bubble. But It's okay. Just be gentle. <laughs> I'm known for my gentle nature. Um, we're living in very interesting times, and I can't help but note that for somebody like yourself, and so much of your story was sort of based on making music in unconventional methods. How has your creative process been affected, if at all, by a pandemic slash lockdown? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, it has been affected in the sense that the first couple of months I didn't, um, I really didn't have any inspiration. And I think that had to do with just processing the entire thing. And so I, I was one of those guys where the first, like when everybody was DJing on Instagram and stuff, like I was just watching like ice road truckers and shit, you know what I mean? Like I was, I just wasn't feeling it. That continued kind of throughout the summer, largely also because the, um, you know, the George Floyd protests and everything kind of made me feel that it was really a time for for people that that do that as a thing, you know, like the, the run the jewels of the world. Um, and so I really didn't feel like it was even prudent um, at that moment to get in the way of that. So it really took me until my um, yeah, the end of summer when you know it started i started getting the itch again i am fortunate that i don't i'm a studio musician first and foremost you know i've never been a touring rat i miss doing shows you know like everybody but i'm not i'm not like craving like getting out on the road you know at all 
I just really, I'm in general somebody that sticks to themselves and I don't really have a lot of guys in the studio, like, you know, smoking blunts while I'm working. So largely nothing has really changed for me in the sense that I'm um, just here doing my work remotely still, you know, 20 years later, kind of exactly the same scenario. You're ahead of the curve. I was. I mean, uh, it's crazy because I even talked about Fonte or to Fonte about this, like, just randomly you created a lane that at the time was just more than anything, just convenience. And it turns out that that's right now a lifesaver. It's kind of crazy to realize that like just in all the drama and just bad times, it's like, wow, like at least there's that, you know? I had a conversation with Fonte as well over the summer and we both sort of laughed and we're acknowledging that in a weird way without knowing it, we were sort of training for this moment all of our <laughs> lives, you know? But... Another thought that I've had too is that I've noticed there are a lot of people who existed in the world or in my life whose interests and their ability to thrive was very much predicated on a lot of external things. And for myself and other musicians and people who can be more insular, I guess, it, it sounds like it's negative, but being more self-involved definitely helps in a time like this because if you're the type of person where your main moment of relief was to always go to the bar, you know, every Friday and that was your that was the apex of your workflow and your week, I understand why people are going a little insane right now. If you're a garage band right now, you know what I mean, or like any of that type of stuff, of course, like it's it's a huge deal also because you don't know when stuff does come back. You don't know what will come back. You know, you don't know which venue venues will have survived. Um, you don't know what that means for finances. Like, you know, you, you're used to getting paid something that you may never get again um, because there may only be a quarter of the people. Uh, allowed to to come to your shows from here on out. Like I, I had a conversation even um, about this like a week ago about thinking back to merch tables and long lines of dapping people and taking selfies and that I think is gone forever. Honestly, like I think I think that sort of those sort of real intense sort of physical moments. I I do think when even shows come back, it will be slightly different so depending on what your strengths and weaknesses are right now and i don't mean weaknesses as in like choices i mean weaknesses as in like you may just happen to be in box x versus box y by being a touring guy versus a you know i'm for me i was very fortunate that i, I had a couple of albums that that did really well in a time when that still mattered a little bit so um you know i can sustain this this time and I feel incredibly uh, fortunate, but it's, I realize it is a, a byproduct of how we started out. I'm going to estimate that this is from 2005, but you'll be able to tell me this was an instrumental put out on your City Lights Volume 1.5 compilation. And the song is called There's No Guarantee.
I mean, this is definitely like Beatmaker era, right? Yes. I was making beats for Essentially Connected, which is my first album uh, as, as the foreign exchange with Fonte. And so this album is basically, if I had to be disrespectful, you know, the stuff that didn't make it all connected. So for various reasons, not because it was bad. I was really making a lot of beats at the time. And Fonte was my, still is kind of my curator in a way, <clears throat> in the sense that he makes his own choices, uh, obviously. So this, you know, this material was all done at the same time. Between uh, 2001 and 2002, three, I was really interested in sampling at the time, largely influenced by, you know, liking stuff like Tribe Cold Quest and, and Dilla and stuff. And even though I was a musician, and so I never really learned sampling, quote unquote, the way that most people did. Like I never had an MPC or I really had to sort of find my own way to do it. So I used a computer to do it. And I instantly started you know, combining that with just my own instruments. So even the track that you just heard, this sample is pretty pronounced as, as most of my stuff was at that time, but there's a lot of extra stuff that I added um, and, and subtracted. And so I, um, I think that was my setup at the time, like a hybrid sort of thing, samples and added instrumentation. How deep was your music career or your experience in making and recording your own music before people became aware of Nicolay of Foreign Exchange? It was a situation where I describe it as um, close but no cigar, like on the verge but never quite there. Like I, at the time, we did make it to uh, to the Warner Brothers offices in the Netherlands. But I mean, you can ask yourself what that. Means you know. Well, everybody knows about the Netherlands branch, <laughs> right? Is, but I mean, we we did good. Like we had national attention. We had a high profile fan who was a DJ at the kind of the main Dutch pop radio, and so he would at nighttime, like he would have his playlist, but then he would sneak us in there and eventually got us to record some stuff. And I think for myself at the time, I was um, in my early twenties. Like, I was ready to full-on go for it, but none of us was paying the bills. Not even close, you know? And so even when we were at our most successful, you know, you you might walk away with a couple of hundred after a gig, you know? But it wasn't going to be... Like, I had my own place at the time, and so it was never going to be... Or at least at that moment, it just didn't really ever get to that point where I was like, okay, I can justify... You know, my parents were a factor still at that time. And it was just like I was still in college. And I just decided, like, this is not this is not going anywhere. So I quit all that and uh, got a job. I was close in some ways, but in other ways, I was kind of like I had already accepted that it wasn't going to be a thing in my life. And obviously that acceptance led to it being a thing in my life. It, it I mean, that's really kind of how it really went all the way. Like I quit so that I could find a job and support myself and be a dude about it. Instantly hated the job. Like, was just like, this sucks. Like, just, I hate it. Just, you know, and so I started making beats at nighttime just, just to still connect to something that didn't suck. Like, I think that really was, you know, the outlet. Because I, I think I became more interested largely also because it was an outlet. It served two, two purposes. Like, obviously I wanted to do music, but it was also like something outside of the job could have been dark throwing or something but it it was music and it you know i'd, I'd go to work six o'clock in the morning or something 
but that would have been after maybe an hour or two of sleep from making beats, you know. So pretty soon my boss was like, well, you know, I mean, that led to like a situation on my, at my employer. Um, but at that point, I sort of bluffed, connected into a success. Um, you could say I was able to not get fired by quitting. By being one step ahead, I quit on uh, December 31st, uh, 2004. And um, the rest is history. Was your background in music making and writing music in a band, do you think that that had any discernible impact or effect on your composition of making beats in this in this stage? My humble beginnings are very similar to most people. Like I joined a band and um, it was a funk band. Like they would play a lot of largely P-funk related material. Beat covers like Mothership Connection. And then we would write our own P-funk songs, which I'm sure were terrible. You know what I mean? But it, we were just copying. You know, we would wear crazy outfits and we were just kind of copying that vibe. And uh, Prince and The Time and Zap, they had a, a multi-track recorder. When I joined, they already had it and they didn't really know how it worked. And they were just like, we spent like five, $6,000 on a six-track multi-track, but we really don't know how it works. Why don't you take it home? And, and, and that was the first thing that I've ever done musically was start and record my own little demos on that which would have been, you know, I had drums coming out of a keyboard and a bass and basically just made Bootsy Collins knockoffs, you know, in my bedroom. And it was really cool. It's like, okay, I can multi-track and stuff. So very rudimentary, but definitely a direct link to uh, later. And I think uh, at some point, a computer kind of replaced the cassette, the, the six-track thing. And I started getting into compu- making music with computers. But yeah, essentially, I'm still doing that. At the time, I was making songs that I would intend to play with the band. So it was more like, this is the groove. But it went further and further and further. And the beat making part of it came into play with when I heard Voodoo really like, I mean, that was really the moment for me where I was like, okay, I'm stuck. Like, I don't know what to do. This is what I want to do, but I don't want to copy it. Voodoo, like Water for Chocolate. And uh, a little bit later, the first um, Slum Village album, I was like, okay, this is really exactly what I, what I think I love about what this can be, but I don't really have anything to add to it per se. So I, was, I went sort of back to being a fan for a while and just did like voodoo knockoffs at night. Like just, if you listen to a lot of my 2000 era, 2001, like really just right before stuff like come around and everything, it's all just voodoo style beats like because i was just obsessed with it i was absolutely obsessed with it i think slowly but surely that started being less voodoo and more you know myself ultimately but that could have been just it like like that year could have easily been like okay that you know voodoo exists like we can all go home the album of the century has been made like yeah why will we even you know what i mean i I was i this weird sort of sense of peace of like, it's him. It, it can't get any better than this. No, and I, I think I felt that for the entire year. Like I went to go see him live and several times on that tour. And it was like, oh my God, like I found who is the next prince to me. Like like I was very comfortable and, and just, just a fan. I could go back to just a fan. But for me, it never really stays there. Like it always is like at some point, somebody's knocking on the door like, Here's an idea. 
It's a good thing too, because if you waited for the follow-up to Voodoo, just being a fan, you would have been <laughs> profoundly unhappy for the better part of 15 years. Song two. Hopping back a year, it's from 2004 is Connected, and the song is Nick's Groove. So this is more of the that realized sound that you were sort of referring to. And you have your name attached to this one, so you're obviously putting your stamp on it in, in one way or another. I don't know if that was on you or maybe that was Fonte naming it that. That was a Fonte. It was a double-layered uh, nod to Quick's Groove, which is TJ Quick has like a couple of them, I think two or three on that. Uh, I forgot what album it was, but it was, it was a play on that but also kind of like a a way for us to sort of um, tell people what was going on and who was doing what, because he was doing Little Brother at the time and we had done, so we had done Light It Up Together and people thought it was Ninth Wonder. Like people were just like, oh, that's cool. And even I think Excel, XXL Magazine was all like, and definitely pay attention to the B-side, Light It Up, which is Ninth Wonder, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, okay, shit my first moment was kind of a dud and so at that point we started to be a little bit more like this is a separate thing from little brother it became my anthem in a way i think because of one my name is attached to it but b it's people's favorite track i think from that album i mean i think it's one of my favorite productions because in that lane it is kind of i think the most successful i have uh, got you know the sample slash obscure instruments i think that was kind of the peak of that sound I'm really still very proud of it I, I i remember less and less about how i made it i found the the um the singers unlimited i don't think people ever knew that that's what it like that's one of the samples where to this day people never guessed like what it was i think even on who sampled um they don't have that one but it's it was a little singers unlimited thing that i found and um completely rearranged in like a million kind of like a premiere thing where the end became the you know how it goes and i was like wow this is really 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 this is kind of it and then fonte heard it and he was like yeah this is kind of the the sound that we're that we're trying to go for you were in the netherlands fonte was in north carolina and you're shooting files back and forth on like instant messenger and communicating on OK Player, which was a message board, and message boards were this was like the pre-social <laughs> media. It really feels like we're. It doesn't feel when I f think about it like it's another time. It still feels like I'm living in that era. But I realize sometimes when I explain it to people who weren't there, that's like, oh, there's a lot of disclaimers that I'm gonna have to. I think it was an in-between time. Looking back, we have one leg still in the CD era when we came out. We had the benefit with Connected that record stores still existed. And so the success of Connected was heavily tied to independent record stores, mom and pops, word of mouth, and a label that while they did a lot of things, sort of, they were doing their best. They got caught off with this, got caught off guard with the success. 
And so they were a little bit behind the ball, but they they meant well. So we had a label that really knew kind of what they had. So one might say they were barely breaking even. I mean, to their credit, they, that was always true. <laughs> I don't think it matters what record they ever put out. I think every single one barely broke even. That started as a joke, but in all reality, kind of was a, a real statement of like, we want to put out music that we love versus make a lot of money. You know, I think we fit well at that time in their lineup, in their, you know, they did a lot of the Beat Generation stuff. And we had talked to Hieroglyphic, the Hieroglyphic Borum first, actually. We were, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, I don't think a lot of people, maybe nobody knows that. Little Brother toured with Hieroglyphics on the Full Circle exactly. Tour. That was actually the first time I saw Little Brother. I think that's their rosebud kind of uh, moment where they sort of grew up in two weeks. Like, literally, I think. They did a bunch of shows. And and so Fonte was talking to a lot of those guys. And so at the time, it came up like, well, maybe that could be like a hiero thing. And I honestly don't remember why it didn't become that. But at some point, BBE came up. That was another Fonte thing. I think he just was making connections at that time, like, because of what he was doing, you know? So the BBE thing was really weird for me because I signed my first record deal like 3,000 miles away from where the action happened. Like, it was like, yay, I got a record deal. But I'm sitting here, like, I, it was really weird. Like, on one hand, my dreams had come true. Like, literally, I always wanted a record deal. Like, record deal, record deal, record deal. I think now kids wouldn't understand that for us, that was like... It legitimized. Yeah, that was what you shot for. You, you know, you didn't know what that would, you know, practically mean or how that would work or what, you know, but that's what you wanted, you know. And um, it was really just a, a moment of like, I guess so, you know, why not? And from there on out, it just got really real, really quick. Like the interview request started to come in. It was like, okay, from there on out, I realized like, this is something I started coming to the States and it was a very interesting time. And and I think now you don't really have that landscape anymore. I think the streaming part of it, I don't know how we would have fared had we come out in 2015, 16, you know what I mean? I really don't know. We, we were able to sell records still at a time where you could make a, a decent buck for that. And I think that's why we're still, going strong now the foundation that we laid is why we're still here when you say that do you mean in the way that because you built a fan base that was already attuned to buying records that they are still buying your records even at a time that people generally don't buy records or do you mean that in another way no i think that's roughly what i mean i think you know connected and later leave it all behind became successful to a point where they still generate revenue today, you know? So it's kind of like a thing where, I mean, I'm obviously not in Beverly Hills. It, it, it's within reason, but, I, you know, I can live off of that uh, money if I'm creative. And in North Carolina, where the cost of living is um, very reasonable. I, it, it's a combination of, at the time, people really were getting those records, and but people, to whatever degree, still do, granted, Nowadays, it's 90% um, streams, you know, so. Going back to the actual creative process of that era, and you had mentioned that you sort of, ironically, felt a little disconnected because you were so far from where the action was. Did you feel that 
you sort of had a hand in overseeing the project overall? Because it's sort of, in a, in a way, I remember when I first listened to Connected, I was a little confused because there were so many other voices. And then I sort of like attuned myself to it that, okay, this is... Uh, an album. It's not really a compilation, but there's a rotating cast of characters. So my question to you is, did you feel like you sort of had your hand on the steering wheel with this, with Fonte, or do you think it was sort of you providing the music and Fonte was kind of sculpting what Connected specifically was going to be as an album? That's a great question. I think as corny as it sounds, it was literally 50-50 when it came to the music. You know, Fonte chose the cast of characters that you mentioned, and that that is his role to this day. Um, he is really doing that still. He's a producer in that sense, that he will pick the right person for the um, right track. Musically, I think I was able to put my stamp on it more than anything. What you hear is largely Fonte's choice, because I obviously made things that didn't end up on the album. But that being said, all of the transitions that you hear... It's all me, you know, going from A to B and how to do it. He is a sequencing master, you know, so he is very good at like, this should be track one and this, you know, two, three or four. And then I normally figure out like how to make that happen. If he at the time as a unit, because I was in Holland at first was kind of really quicksand, you know what I mean? Because like the album did really, really great. But Little Brother was Fonte's um, bread and butter, and understandably so. Um, so it was a side project. And so at first it felt a little bit like that. It was like, this is really cool, but now what? Like, what What do we do? And then uh, Fonte started touring the album as Little Brother, kind of. Like, he essentially, you know, instead of making it an F.E. thing, he toured the album with Boo and um, Yazra and Darian. I wanted to come to the States and tour really bad, but it was like, we didn't really know how far we were going to go with it. So that first um, connected quote-unquote tour, I was never on it. Like, I'm on the t-shirt. <laughs> like, that's about it. You know what I mean? Like, I did some shows in Europe, uh, but this was my baby, yet it was clear that my baby was sitting in the back seat, you know, and... But that was understood, so it wasn't something that I complained about. It was just like, okay. it was never presented as being anything but that. You, you, you knew what it was. But what's interesting is that I can't think of a lot of examples where this happens, where the side project actually eclipsed the main project. You know, for obviously Foreign Exchange was your baby, but for a long stretch of time, I think that Fonte has been in Foreign Exchange for more years than he's been in Little Brother, really, at this point. Probably um, because they were on breaks a lot. What ended up happening really was at a time where Fonte was not sure what to do next with hip hop in general, I, I, I suppose. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for him, so I got to be careful not to put words in his mouth. But I know that at, a, at the time that we started doing Leave It All Behind, he was interested in doing something different. And so when I started sending him more adventurous stuff, I think it just, I didn't know that, you know what I mean? But it was just serendipity in, in a way. It kind of started leaving a, a life of its own, really from day one. We did leave it all behind. We talked to BBE momentarily, but they were like, I think they were on the way out sort of as a, as a unit in general. And it wasn't like that he didn't like it. It was just like, 
guys, you may just want to do this yourselves. And it was just like, oh, shit, like you can do that. That's what ended up happening. And so it just started snowballing. It was our own label. Then it started being successful. Then we started doing shows because people really wanted us to. We had never planned that. And so by the time the Grammy nomination came around, it was like, oh, shit, like this is now apparently <laughs> the thing that we're doing. And I think it it wasn't that that pulled Fonte away from Little Brother so much as that it was a, refu- a refuge for him when things in Little Brother didn't really work out the way that he wanted. It didn't persuade him. I think it was just a calm sea that he ended up in that worked for him to a point where he was like, I'm good for a while just doing this. Skipping forward all the way to 2020 now, and it is the self-titled song from your A New World EP. Anybody who was paying attention in 2020 sort of saw that you were starting to release a series of EPs kind of quietly compared to how you and Foreign Exchange, you know, music has operated in the past. So, and from what I understand, I'm an FE fan. I'm on the <laughs> newsletter. I, I think I stay kind of tapped in, but I haven't really heard you talk a lot about these projects. It was really like going back to our previous conversation about the pandemic and when I sort of had a moment of like, I really want to do something. I had a bunch of material. It was too wide of a variety. Like normally I do a city lights record every so often and I probably would have done it, but it was, I had too much material one and two, it was all over the place. So it was like, this, I can't make any sense of this. At some point I realized like if I sort of divide everything up by rough tempo slash feel, I have essentially three piles of music that could be like little EPs or something. And I presented that idea to Fonte. I was like, tell me if I'm crazy, but this could be really cool. Like if I had three EPs and I'm staggering them and one is like a little drum and bass feel and the other one is house and the third one is a little bit more just all over the place. And he was like, man, that is actually really, really cool. Especially if you at the end of the road, then kind of bundle it anyway. As a, as a vinyl or as like a record. I played it low key because normally when I release a record and I'm very vocal about it, I end up talking a lot about what it isn't, not what it is. And I hate that. Like, I, I really don't like that. And I really decided for myself, like I'm, I'm, I'm no longer going to talk about what this is not. And um, so I kind of stopped talking, I think, altogether in the sense that when I do say something about this, like I'm very deliberate, but I'm, I'm just leaving it up to the music at this point to make the sale, quote unquote. I think maybe this comes with being a couple, like aging, I guess, but I'm no longer really super into promoting myself day in and day out on Twitter and Facebook. And that whole part of it feels a little, I'm over that. Um, so that in long story short, I just really kind of wanted it to 
exist on its own not to like don't give people any interpretations of what it means even the song titles are complete just just my creativity doesn't mean anything deeper per se than that it's just um i just wanted for people to discover it and have their own sort of interpretations and that's been really cool because that i was hoping that that would happen that people would be like talk about stuff on the ep that i didn't think they were going to so and i'm glad that i never pushed them in the other direction by saying like this is the single or this is the you know what i mean like there's no narrative it's almost like a rorschach test and you're just letting people draw from it what they see whatever it is they see yeah and 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 there's no wrong um interpretation you know and 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 i think i like that and it felt great it felt really great because i was like i'm I'm no longer going to talk about yes this is not rap music yes this is not samples yes this is not hip-hop which is sort of insane that you would still have to answer that it's been you know 15 years I'm not great at math, so I keep throwing out these numbers, but it feels like it's been 15 years. <laughs> well, and to, and, to, and, and to be true, I mean, our fans, I'm not talking about our, our fans' fans. Like, they, at this point, they know. Like, they, they have taken that as a point of stride. Like, but there's still people, and I'm just like, how are you still around 20 years after, after the fact asking for Connected too? Like, why, at some point, have you not thought, like, dude, I need to, I may need to just wrap this up. This is not going to happen. I, the, the, the hill that they die on, I never understood it because it was like, if you want that so much that you're willing to ignore whatever happened the 10 years after that, you should just put that record on. You should just do that. Like you should wear your college sweater if you still have it and just sit on the couch and reminisce, you know, because that's what you want. You don't want, you don't want, you want to have that feeling again. And I can't give you that feeling. If I did that in 2020, I would fail and it would look really bad, you know? So we've never said like, we're not going ever back to the quote unquote connect sound. But that being said, like, don't expect for us to to literally repeat something that is 20 years ago for us. And now we're older and there's kids, there's marriages, there's, there's still some people around that are still, that still find it interesting to say that whenever we drop something new, it's like, uh, it's crazy. Well, let me ask you something then about what the music is. I was thinking this as I was listening to this song, A New World, and the projects themselves. And I'm saying this as I look in your background, you you definitely have a lot of synths. And you know, <laughs> anybody who follows you has occasionally seen studio shots. So my question for you is, when it comes to composing... How much of these songs is rooted first in the actual composition versus how much of it is rooted in what I guess I would call the sound design? Like, is it like Mm. instrumentally composing and then finding the sound or the patch to best execute that? Or is it, this is a dope patch or dope sound on this synth. Let me make something with this sound. Yeah, it's 100% happy accident. Like okay. maybe 99, like I shouldn't sell myself short is 90% happy excellence. Like literally, like I can point you some favorite moments of mine in my catalog. And I know it was just me fucking around. And all of a sudden I'm like, what the fuck? What, whoa, what was that? 
So you're not necessarily sitting at like a, an acoustic piano and writing, you know, the song and then being like, okay, I have this composition. Now let me, let me find the MIDI or, or the synth to like, you know, make this interesting. It's more you're tinkering around with the instruments and then being like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's really, um, and I like that you say sound design because that's a large part of it for me. Um, so mixing and producing and sound design really is kind of all one sort of nebulous. Like people are always like, all right, I'm, I'm going into mixing. Like I'm, I've got my album, I'm going into mi-, And I'm always just like, I don't really, like we mix as we go kind of. And then when you're done, you sort of kind of make sure that it all sounds like coherent. But I mix constantly as I go, you know, and, and I think, one part of what makes my music so effective is that it that it sounds exactly the way that I want it to. Why I say that is because an idea in itself can be relatively rudimentary. Like I think if you analyze my music on musical content, I'm not going to be up there with the Frank Zappas and the you know the Captain Beefhearts and the like, I'm going to be more sort of in the middle when it comes to musical complexity. Um, that being said, I think the power is in how I present it, you know, and I think the choices in sounds and patches, um, sound design choices, um, how I make certain mix decisions is how I kind of push it over the top. But I'm not really doing anything that somebody else isn't, you know. I don't look at myself as like... A, like I consider myself an innovator, but not because I'm using like Dorian scales with diminished. Like I, it's just what I do. But I'm I I don't really um I don't really look at it as like super complex stuff. I just let it happen. I really it sounds very kind of uh, incense and candles and shit. But it is largely just happy accidents, like a moment where you realize like I wouldn't have come up with that had I just followed like the plan. There's tracks where I really can't even remember sort of where where the beginning and the end was. Um, but they're all, there's a lot of happy accidents, a lot of just technology and misusing it or using it in a different way. Like that feeling of like not knowing where it came from. It, it literally is a, 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 for me, it's not necessarily a spiritual process, but it's definitely like, oh, wow, like I'm, I'm, I'm linked in right now. Like I'm, Get your hand on the Ouija board and sort of seeing where the uh, where it takes mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that still excites me as much today as like 20 years ago, you know, that, that new idea. And even in the new stuff, there's a couple of tracks where it's like literally 100% is just pure, just happy accidents after another that became like just this whole other thing. From 2018, and it's from the Glaciers album with the Hot at Nights, and the song is called Behind Your Door. So I actually saw you guys when you did your show in LA on this tour and I I didn't really know the record too well. I just 
knew that you were touring. And I was like, well, let me check this out. You know, always interested to see. And it was quite an experience, you know, definitely <laughs> high, high impact musicality, instrumentation was the composition and the writing on a song like this different than how you would make tracks or things that are, are just you and not with a band? It started as me more just like, let's try these tracks with the band. So you had the tracks done. I had most it- of those tracks either as demo form or as half finished. Um, so that's how it started. It started like, okay, I can just remove my own drums and get Nick, the drummer, to, you know, and that then we're already sort of halfway in, you know. So that's how it started. But then it involved like it evolved to like more deliberate sort of like we're doing this as us, like from scratch. So the track that you just played, I had that idea for a while and I liked it, but I never really knew what to do with it. It was kind of like a Stevie Wonder slash, I mean, it could be whatever. And I think until this project, I just didn't have a a good place for it. And I think that goes for a lot of the tracks on this album. Like they were all sort of jazzy, quote unquote, tracks, but I'm not a jazz musician. I don't claim to be. I know a lot of good jazz musicians, so it's like, all right, I can at least sort of collaborate in a way where I'm not really the chicoria of the situation, you know what I'm saying? But I am kind of the Quincy Jones of it. Like, I'm mapping out what we're playing, what the sound choices are, but from there on out, I'm letting these guys just cook. And that is really what what happened and and same as like everything else it took a life of its own because we we started doing these shows and realizing like okay like this could be something where we could pull that we could actually pull that off we had never thought about that making of the record because it's it's a crazy record with overdubs and just full-on production i never really thought we could pull that off but we tried and it was like we we have a shot at like doing this live and what was great about that is like i am so out of my league with these guys that it's kind of like a hilarious sort of push and pull of me trying to keep up but also sometimes i'm ahead because i'm i write the shit so i'm in control but i'm also completely out of my element and having to play at the top of my ability very different than a foreign exchange show where i'm i'm not going to say i'm coasting it because i'm working really hard but it it's all, I don't, there's nothing on that foreign exchange show that I could really, really, really fuck up. How the night show, my first note could be fucking, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm gone, you know what I mean? And so that was so great for me. There were a couple of nights where, I mean, you saw the LA show, that was towards the end of it. So that was when I was like, I, f- I figured my shit out. And like, there were some dramatic early shows where everything went wrong that could go wrong. I still sometimes wake up and just think of like that bridge is coming and I just (laughs) like, I'm still, there's a couple of things like I'm still haunted by. There was one show we did in Atlanta. It was the very first show. And like I said, everything, I just bought a keytar and the keytar fucked up and every, everything was off and Ableton. And it was all just like, I probably remember it worse than it really is. But in my mind, in the movie, that is that scene where just all the spotlights 
are on you and you have nothing. You just are empty headed. It felt like that, man. And it, it was really a moment for me where I was like, yo, like, what am I doing? Like, and then, but it started going better. And at some point we figured it out. But, you know, I, I would think that for you, because you had a background as a band member first, it couldn't have felt, for like, no pun intended, it couldn't have felt totally foreign. Mm -hmm. uh, I know a lot of producers, I started playing in a band before I ever started producing or doing things. And what always struck me is that I'm grateful for the time that I spent playing with musicians because I think that that actually makes you a very good collaborator. And I don't, I'm not knocking the people who haven't had this experience, but you can sometimes tell when I've been in with other producers whose only mode of operation has been them and a laptop. And when you're introducing other personalities or musical ideas, you can see that it's, you're, 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 frazzling like they, they, they're like oh what is this 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 isn't how music making goes so i guess my question for you is beyond the the technical haunting that you still the trauma <laughs> that you still feel what is the biggest thing that you learned from reintegrating into a band configuration after having been separated from it for so long for me it represents a lot of things that are the best thing that I could think of, like some guys in a van, you know, just, I mean, there's a romantic side to it. And I mean, romantic as in like, you know, not literally romantic. Camaraderie. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a, there's a um, idyllic sort of side to that where you just show up at a venue, you feel a little bit like you're in a game, you know, you're, you're strength in numbers and you show up together and you, you play together, you attack together. It's like an army. It's like, a band of brothers, you know, for good or for worse. So when you have a terrible show, you have each other to help each other get through it. And if you have a great show, obviously it's like you celebrate together too. And I've, I've loved that with the foreign exchange. Um, but that's a different scenario for us because it's like really, I mean, no, you know, I don't want to diminish what the band does, but the foreign exchange is Fonte and myself. And so everything is literally kind of, controlled in that way with the hotter nights i was really kind of one of four guys i did feel like i was just one of four i wasn't nicolay and the hotter nights while that was being built i was really just like you know i was just ringo you know what I'm saying like i wasn't even i wasn't even the main beetle like right. i was you know i was i mean maybe i was george harrison but i wasn't <laughs> certainly was not john or paul who certainly was not john or paul i don't always need to be up front or be the guy. I've always liked that about foreign exchange too. Like I'm more than happy that Fonte is the guy because he is anyway. Because even Fonte and I were joking about that yesterday. What people don't realize is like, because sometimes they think like, oh, Fonte is the rapper, the bad cop, where I'm the good cop kind of thing. Where I'm, and, and he was, he always jokes. He's like, what people don't realize is like, it's actually kind of the other way around. Like I can be much more blunt in how I present my uh, expression. And, and people sometimes don't know that because I don't really, I don't say anything at shows. I, I mean, I do when, I'm, when it's my show, but in the FE show, I'm not, I'm not riffing with Fonte, you know what I mean? Like I'm not ad-libbing jokes or something. I, that's not my place. So with the Hotter Nights, it was literally equality in a van together, driving sometimes six, seven hours on a day, 
and then still playing a show, you know, and that, that camaraderie, as you know, it's hard to sustain something like that in the moment. It's, it's fantastic. You know, and I do think you learn a lot from putting yourself in a situation where you're not the star, where you're not the, I mean, certainly not the virtuoso, but if I'm playing with the hot at night, like I'm putting myself in a room where I'm not the best musician. End of story. I love that. I was working hard for it those two years, you know, working really, really hard for it. So far. 2010, it's from uh, Foreign Exchange's Authenticity album. It's probably one of my favorite Foreign Exchange songs ever, and it is Laughing at Your Plants. country song yes did it start as a country song yes because the demo was called nick's country band like so it yes i mean it was literally like i still have it in my itunes like i recorded this and i was like this is so on the nose that i'm going to call it what it is and i sent it to fonte well there's three things can happen when you send fonte some music there's the instant reaction which is rare you sort of hit it out the park, where it's just like, okay. Like when I did like Nick's Groove, for instance, that was an instant reaction track. And then you have the, um, the in the middle, it's kind of like, yeah, that's cool. That one is tricky because it usually means it's not cool. Like, but it's, you know, it's, you have to sort of read that one. And there's a third and that's like, you don't hear anything. Like, and you're just like, ooh, but you don't want to ask, you know, because if you ask, you might be, jump in the gun. So this was one where I never heard anything back. And I was like, that could either mean that I, I literally went too far. And, and then like maybe a few days after that, I got the entire song from him back. Not only had he um, decided to write to it and do it, but he was so into the, what it represented that he got the guy on fiddle to come in and the guy on pedal steel and he was like we're doing this all the way like we're doubling down on what this is without it's still going to be foreign exchange but we're stylistically we're going to do this it's interesting how popular it became because it like every album i have one track that i'm like okay this is pushing it over the edge i thought daykeeper was pushing it over the edge honestly Maybe not so much the track itself, but like where we came from and then doing that. And and this was the one on authenticity. It was like, if people like this, then, I mean, we're lucky sons of bitches for having great fans. And that's what happened. We are lucky sons of bitches because we have great fans. Randomly, it's like our most popular song in South Africa. I did not expect that sentence to end that way. No, and we didn't either. And when we... <laughs> went to South Africa, we hadn't rehearsed it because we, we didn't either. And um, they were very upset with us. And we played every fucking song that we knew that night. And yet they would not let us leave until we played Laughing at Your Plans. And when we did, they belted out every word of it in, in a way that I will never forget. So what, if you can, and this is a tough thing for you to answer, but what is it about that song that you think 
connects with so many people, not just South Africans, but but obviously it struck a chord. What do you, what do you think if you're able to analyze your own catalog in that way? Why why does it have that effect? Because God is laughing at your plans, and last year showed it. I mean, every I mean, I'm not personally a religious person, so I don't I don't take it literally as like there's somebody who is like messing with your plans, but the larger message of that that things go differently than you expect and or want. I think everybody has been there at some point or another. And I think it's a universal song because of that. There's a couple of songs that we've done that I think are universal to a point where we know that people sort of have given it a place in their lives. And I think this is one of those songs where there's an upliftment to, I think, the content um, without it being corny or without it being like kumbaya. Um, but it is, and it is kind of that, that side of Fonte, I think, that comes out on tracks like um, Leave It All Behind, like when he sings to his sons. And it's, it's, it's a very personal expression, maybe not necessarily autobiographic, but it's, very, it's, a, it's I think, Fonte at his most sort of direct. Like he, he can tap into that thing sometimes that makes you just, I mean, same as me. Like you just wonder, well, where the hell, you know, like what? He just can really, really do that. I think in terms of songwriting, that's one of his best, I think, um, that like I could and that's saying a lot because he's got a few. What is difficult or tricky about pop music, like songwriting, is creating an idea that is so broad, mm-hmm. but is able to be targeted in a way that can feel so personal and intimate. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's that duality God is laughing at your plans. That could be a bumper sticker. I'm sure that is a bumper sticker somewhere, but delivered in a way that feels precisely and acutely intimate, personal. Right. And even though it has a religious connotation from the person that wrote it, you don't need to, that layer to appreciate what it is. Everybody has, has been through that time where shit is just not going your way. Authenticity was the third album that you guys did together, and you've done uh, two more since. Is it true that you and Fonte have still not ever recorded music in the same room, like written, and that you guys still continue to work remotely? Yeah, that's true to this day, and I think we're not going to jinx that. Like, I know that this sounds funny to people, but we, I think at this point, we believe that we might jinx it if we. Like, I think it's going so far now. It's kind of like, I don't know how familiar you are with, with Prince and Claire Fisher mm. working together, but Prince was so fond of that particular working relationship that he, he soon became superstitious and didn't want to meet Claire Fisher ever. Didn't want to see a record cover. Didn't want to see a photo of the man, apparently. Now, I know how much of this is myth-making, but the fact remains that they've never met even though they were incredibly, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of, it's, it, and it, it, it went on for, I think, 20 years. So, I mean, this is kind of our sort of light version of that. I think that we have found a sweet spot and I think we don't feel any desire to change that. And we're not really studio guys per se anyway. Like I don't get in the car and go to electric lady or something you know what i mean like i'm i'm walking to my bedroom from one bedroom to the to the next with a bowl of cereal i might be wearing a robe um you know say i this is not something that anybody needs to see (laughs) or be around you know what i mean this is not 
Maybe for the OnlyFans, but you know, not. I could at some point see, you know, like if if, if we hitting on hard times, <laughs> I might put that webcam on. But no, I think I think we've always said like, don't don't show me how you butchered the cow. Just serve me the burger. That's what we do. If I have an idea, I get to fully ex- execute that idea until I present it to Fonte and not having somebody look over my shoulder ensures that that is a very um, legit expression. Like I don't, when I send stuff to him, like sometimes, like even with the laughing at your plan, sometimes you're like, woof, I don't know. You know, you feel very self-conscious, but in a lot of ways, I wouldn't do a laughing at your plans if there's somebody sitting like, why are you pulling out an acoustic guitar? Like, what is this shit? Like, why are you, you know what I mean? Like I would be so aware of, somebody else that I wouldn't really go to where I go to. Were you listening to a lot of country at the time that you made the country band jam, whatever demo? I was listening to a lot of Neil Young. Yes. I wasn't really listening to like, I'm not necessarily like the country that I like is more sort of the Grant Parsons, the Neil Young, even the Eagles and sort of the California version of it. Not Hank Williams guy or like, I guess I like, the Californification version of it. And I grew up on, on, on Neil Young, on Buffalo Springfield. Not myself, obviously. These were my parents' records. But I knew of Harvest before I knew of Stevie Wonder. You know what I'm saying? I do have that um, influence. And I think it authenticity is, is kind of that time where that was appropriate to introduce into the, into the mix. Song 6. This is from 2006's Here album, and it is a song called What It Used To Be featuring Wiz Khalifa, which, I mean, I was so glad when this came up because I have questions, so we'll, we'll play a clip. That's why I stay on my toes, you know. Wiz Khalifa's first appearance, maybe? Am I making that up? Or early appearance? I, yeah, if it's not the first, it's got to be one of the first. I know he didn't have his, uh, his own project out yet at the time. Wiz was literally 15 at the time. I mean, 15. he was 15 years old when he did wow. that track. 15 or 16, I want to say. At the time, he was being sort of, he was literally kind of being groomed into a superstar. Like, it was really interesting to see. I've never really seen that up close, that process. He had a team of people that were rock solidly convinced that Wiz was the next big thing, and they committed to uh, getting there. And, I mean, to their credit, they did. Like, they really, really did. Um, but it was a five-year process, and I worked with him at the beginning of it, kind of. So it was really cool because it was like, I mean, at the time he was more, he was trying to be a, a more like a, a rapper, I think, in the tradition of like a Jay-Z. I mean, he was really into Jay-Z at the time. You could kind of hear it in his vocal, but he was really into that. And I think as he went, became a little bit older, he became more poppy and... But he, I mean, in those days, like he would do shows with me 
if I would come to Pittsburgh do a DJ show, like he would jump on stage with me and do a jam. Like his mom would come drop him off. Like it was literally like that. Like it, it was very wholesome in those days. I, I don't have any uh, reason to believe it's not still wholesome, but well, his mom is probably not dropping him off at shows now. I think we can agree that that's probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, it, but she was. I mean, she was really just. You could tell, like, she was really proud of him, like, but she was also just like, you know, he was really, really young. I, I think quickly he, he, he blew up uh, after this, but it was, it's, it's kind of my one sort of um, claim to major rap fame. Like, the, literally the one time that I can think of that, it, that I ended up working with a, what later became a superstar. I did meet him later at some point in New York, and, and I don't know if this was before or after we'd done the track, but I did meet up with him and his manager at the time, a guy named Benji Ginsberg, Ginsberg who uh, also launched Mac Miller later. So like a, a really, really, really connected, smart guy. And so I met Benji and, and I met Wiz and it was just like really cool. And, and But at the same time, as, as those collaborations go, it, went, it didn't really go that deep. You know, because it was one track. It was just like one track, right. and and that was the plan. But it, you know, it became this thing of like as he as his fame increased, people started finding that song, and so randomly that album sometimes has these little weird like spikes, just because people are like discovering that Wiz is on the album that it comes from. Here was a sort of compilation. It was not really a compilation ish album, but it's you working with different vocalists and sometimes instrumental tracks as well. And it was, I sort of always felt, I might be totally tripping here. And if so, correct me. And I might even take this out. <laughs> but it always felt almost a bit more like an outlier in your catalog. Do you feel like that was the case? That it's sort of so much of what you have done and the brand that you've built has been the foreign exchange brand. And like you said, you're not just doing one song with people, you're, whether it's like the Timeline album or whether it's the stuff that you've done with Fonte, it's been a little bit more uh, invested and rooted. And this kind of felt like a different experience from that. What, what was your, where was your sort of mindset at, at the time and what are your thoughts when you look back at it now? Looking back, I don't. I feel it was only a halfway successful album. It was really a, a reaction on Connected. Honestly, it was just a direct sort of result of Connected becoming really successful and people wanting more of that. And me with my fucking arrogant ass saying like, "No, I'm not doing that." And at the time, I think now that I'm looking back, I can sort of see why I did that and why that didn't help the album. Um, like I was really over like people saying like, oh, I love all these mellow beats. Like it's all mellow, 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 mellow. <laughs> and I just, while I uh, appreciated the compliment, I really felt that, that, that I was being put, pushed into a box. And so the, a lot of the here stuff is more aggressive, more, uh, a little bit more straight ahead, very heavy on samples. And just, I think as a record, just kind of a, a little bit of a mixed bag. And I looked at it as not sort of the album that comes after Connected. I think it would have been better. But I think the pressure of that, you know, because it was like it was the, you know, BBE signed me on the heels of Connected as like a thing of like they really wanted to like really our plan was 
to do an empire thing with BBE. Like it was going to be, you know, FE, Darian Brockington. We were going to really do that. And then that kind of went to shit largely because we didn't really know what we were doing, you know? So that went wrong. And so I did end up signing a solo deal to BBE and then quickly realized like shit, like that album is going to be the follow-up to connect it no matter what I do. And I think that just spooked me a little bit because you'll hear like Fonte is not on it. Like he's he's on it, but he's not on the record. And even I think that was for me. I just wanted to push off from it, not realizing yet at the time that I was pushing off against my fucking oldest, smartest child. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, but to be fair, it's like you don't want to get pigeonholed because that makes sense too. You don't want to be you know, typecast in a certain role. And when it comes to these decisions and these careers, there's no real roadmap you can follow. You can look at other people and speculate, but there's no way to actually follow a blueprint to the T. Now, I, I always liken my career to a uh, pinball machine. Like I might hit this one and that makes me go bam. And that makes me go. So every album that I make in itself kind of causes what I do next because it, it, I tend to really make these drastic sort of um, moves, you know? So I, I really, yeah, I think a career is largely just trying to see what works and not repeating what doesn't. At that point in my career, I was still very emotionally attached to what my music was and what people thought of it. Like even a bad review could really devastate me in those days. Like now I just, I just laugh at that shit. Like it's, a, a Sunday or a Saturday morning cartoon, you know what I mean? But at the time, a bad review could really, really take the wind out of my sails. I've learned to sort of realize that every album is just, it's just a moment on the timeline. If one doesn't do very well, the other one might. You can't predict what people like, you know? And, and I've learned that even with Glaciers, which was an album that some people were like, Honestly, that was a that was a bridge too far for them. You know what I'm saying? And you don't learn that by pushing somebody a little bit too much. You know, so I I don't think I um, regret any of it. But with here, like I do think it's has some of my best tracks on it. But that being said, I don't think it's a great album. I think it's a in my catalog. I think it's a I think it's a six. I think it's a six out of ten. It's not bad. I mean, <laughs> no, that's still pretty. I mean, it's definitely not a. Um, four the way pitchfork said but uh <laughs> i uh not that we're keeping track guys but right uh, <laughs> but it's not but that point two that they gave me that was a real diss like they gave me a 4.2 like it's like why even the decimal bro like what the these hips do? and i mean that was a review that stung me for years like i will be very honest with you there were two pitchfork reviews back to back city lights volume one reviewed by a guy whose first sentence of review was that he did not like instrumental music. Um, so this was going to be a difficult one for him. I mean, as it turned out. And the other one was the Hear Review, which got panned. It absolutely got slaughtered on Pitchfork, which it makes sense because it's like, that's the last, that's not my audience. So it makes sense that Pitchfork says like, I mean, now they're kind of hip hop minded. At the time they were, well, they like Kanye. In the first season of this show, of this podcast, I was talking to Blueprint. Uh, about this, the rapper blueprint from Columbus, Ohio. And we sort of spoke about how there was this sea change of 
Pitchfork's relationship and Pitchfork in, in general, like media of that time where they were very much championing an underground sound and people aesthetics that were adjacent to that. And then the tide shifted and that those same journalists and media outlets that were trumpeting these artists. Now it was, they seemingly felt it was their job to slaughter them. Oh, and I was personally uh, an example of that because Connected got a great review on Pitchfork. Right. Connected got a really great review and it was like two years later. <laughs> like we were on the shit list and it from there on out. And then I think we got one or two okay ones again, but it was just to illustrate that at that point, I was still very, I was reading that. I was taking that personally. You know, and I think if I would tell anybody anything about what to do when, is it like, don't fucking read no reviews like is it kind of goes back to the point of like not talking about what something is and but like i've had so many reviews where people literally don't understand what they're reviewing like the glaciers album was reviewed here locally by somebody that made these weird sort of eddie van halen references and 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 uh, about the guitar work and it's you just realize like if somebody literally doesn't have the framework of what something is but still is the guy at the paper that writes the reviews then you end up with some bullshit and i think we've always sort of been in that category because we do a lot of different stuff so it's like the press like something that you can easily like this is what this is right even if there was somebody at the paper whose explicit job was to only review foreign exchange records it, the way that you guys mix it up it still might still a tough job know, yeah still, it'd be a tough job <laughs> yeah yeah still a tough job song seven and the last song is from 2015 foreign exchanges tales from the land of milk and honey and the song is called asking for a friend I have no time to socialize, you silly fools, I sympathize, I work. My fancy car, my lovely flat, no leisure time, no time for that, I work. In my city they have the ball, but no, not me, cause after all, I work. That was one where, again, like both Fonte and I were like, this is either the thing that we sort of built this album around, or this is literally us just indulging ourselves to a point where people are going to laugh at us. I think both do whatever are true, depending on how you look at it. I think it was very, definitely a style homage, um, very on the nose. We don't like to go full throwback. When, like, we always like to have a, a, a mixture, but but we do sometimes go full throwback. That's full throwback. That one and, and uh, working to the top on the same album, which is kind of like a slave homage, you know, like a lot of those songs, because of what the album was, like we, we saw the album as kind of like our version of, of a chic album. Instead of just a guy, like two guys whose uh, faces are not on the cover normally or ever, this was really something where we just like, no, this is a band. This is like vocalists. And we felt that that would be a good way to show appreciation to the people that had been touring with us all those years. So you'll hear a lot of Zoe on the album. You'll hear a lot of Carmen, Tamisha, um, basically our, 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 our touring lineup at that time. Asking for a Friend was really that joy where it's like, 
again, like we're doing it, we're doing it all the way. I mean, the, from the drums to the, you know, we're doing it all the way to Fonte's like faux accent to really was just another one of those things where it kind of exists in that weird sort of double universe where Fonte is like the the best sort of person to do the job. He is part funny, part incredible. He is both a comedian as well as a front man. Um, really what people see in the live shows. I think I think we don't always um, go there on record, but until uh, we did, that was really the, the record where we like, if Fonte is funny on any record, this would be the one where it is appropriate. And there's serious stuff on the record, don't get me wrong, but it, it's, it's full on Fonte. That song and the video even more so is like just letting Fonte be the best Fonte and he never disappoints. Like it's, it's automatic. And I think the video was great. Like we had a fun time. We went to an actual office and these people are just like people working and just not, it was really funny because we were fake working in between all these people that were really working, watching us fake working. It was hilarious. Like it was very, very funny. This record came from 2015. So it's been probably, I want to say the longest gap in between foreign exchange records i feel like i'm not doing the fans justice if i don't ask do you see a foreign exchange record on the horizon yeah yeah definitely we're not on an official hiatus like it's not we haven't edited the wikipedia page like to reflect so like as long as we don't do that like rest assured like it was just a a a result of the circumstances we were going to do an FE album, but then the Little Brother opportunity came up. That was just a live show at first, but then that quickly became like, oh, maybe we can do an album. And I immediately told Fonte, like, just go for it. And so he just did ended up doing that. And it, it kind of worked out because I, you know, I have a myriad of other shit that I do. And so then it was like, all right, the pandemic sort of stopped them in dead in their tracks. So here we are, you know, so... One thing we know is we're not releasing an album until we're able to go 150 with it. Whatever that means, touring, press. When when we come back, it needs to be a big deal. Like it can't be something that we have that week of attention and that's it, you know. So we've just decided to take our time with it. So I can't really make any predictions. Uh, definitely won't be this year. When we'll be back, we'll be back full for it. We'll be back very deliberately and trying to like honestly reclaim sort of our, I think, spot at the top of the totem pole when it comes to, I think, the lane that we're in. I mean, I I think I can say that. I mean, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but, you know, you can sort of tell, like, if you've been gone for five years, people start talking about other people, man. It's like kind of like having a crush on somebody and you just realize, like, wait a minute, we're getting some pretty desperate, like, we're getting some good posts and emails and, like, because people do sort of, jump to conclusions and imagine the worst. Like they see me releasing three EPs and they like, oh my God, they've broken up. Not realizing that the first song was essentially a foreign exchange song. It just is called Nicolay because that's what the record it's on, but still Nicolay Afante. There's nothing that lights to the sky isn't that call it home is, is for instance. So it's like people like to sort of jump to conclusions and um and uh, we every now and then somebody really thinks like they've broken up or, for one we are um business partners outside of the group so it's like 
since then we've done four you know, Fonte solo albums, the mine, Zoe. Like we are working every day. It's just we're not working the way that people think we are. So they instantly think something is wrong. There's nothing wrong. I'm not concerned, as James Brown said on CNN. Ain't nothing wrong. <laughs> I'm not concerned. Ain't nothing wrong. So there's so much uncertainty that we've addressed and sort of spoke about in this conversation just goes beyond music, but obviously music is affected by it. But is there anything that you haven't done broadly speaking that you are aiming to do or looking forward to do as a musician? You're somebody who has genre hopped and and done so many different excursions that hasn't necessarily followed traditional routes. So is there another stop or an area that you haven't really done much in that you would like to do? When I was chasing my record deal, quote unquote, I always had like an idea of like, okay, if you get to do two or three records, you know, like that's not bad, you know? And like looking back, I did like 12 or something at this point. So it's, I've definitely done more than I ever thought. Like even when we did leave it all behind, which was the, the, the big sort of, FE follow-up, I was like, well, that's, I'm probably good to go now. You know what I'm saying? Like I did two FELs, like which was 50% more than I (laughs) ever thought I would do. And so to do three and four and five, at this point, I'm way ahead of whatever I, um, I ever set as goals, you know? So that being said, I would love to do, um, I'd love to score a movie at some point. We we came really close once, uh, but that didn't work out. It was just artistically not really the right, combination and honestly the movie was kind of ass too so it's like i mean that doesn't you know and i mean you don't know that go you know you don't know that going in you know what i'm saying and i think same as people look at our sound as kind of unique and and sort of um its own thing i think i think it would have to be a movie that it would have to be something outside like kind of how how trend reznor did the facebook movie of course, he wasn't Nine Inch Nails doing the Facebook movie, like, but it had, st- it still had, it had enough of Trent in it. I take that as an example to say, like, I would like to do something like that where it's not going to be like, you know, it's not like Nick Groove and shit like that, but but it but it would still have enough. And I think my more recent projects are relatively cinematic in general, you know. So I I think that would work out, but I never had the uh the opportunity yet so that is something that i would love to do i think even now that i'm in my 40s now so if there's anybody listening with a great movie i have great music holler at your boy do it <laughs> thanks again to my guy nicolay for chopping it up with me stay up to date with all things nicolay and foreign exchange by visiting theforeignexchangemusic.com if you haven't already done so please make sure that you rate follow review can knock the shuffle on apple podcasts doing so helps the show and it'll get it on more people's radars hit me up at sean dammit on all the socials or shoot me an email at can't knock the shuffle at gmail.com and tell me who you want to hear come on the show next if you like this show you're probably also really going to love the questions where we dive into the world of hip-hop trivia with artists producers djs actors comedians all types of special guests you can visit us at questionshiphop.com and finally be sure to check out all the other shows on stony island audio i'm talking about what it happened was dad bod rap pod super duty tough work fatherhoods and self-core 
Till next time, peace.